0: Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 19. We'll be reading the entire psalm. And hear the word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Then turning to the New Testament, we'll be reading from First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Again, the word of God. not to please men, but to please God, who test our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether you, from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse- nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us.
1: Okay, this Tuesday night, you're going to be sitting in your most comfortable chair. You're going to have a nice cup of hot tea there, and you're going to have a book you've been longing to dig into. And just as you start reading, the phone's going to ring going to be a telemarketer. Someone you don't know who wants to sell you something. How do you think about that phone call? I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that there's not a single person here who's saying, I can't wait till Tuesday night comes so I can find out how that person is going to improve my life. Uh, indeed, if we knew it was a telemarketer, none of us would have answered the call. Which is kind of interesting because the reality is, is salespeople actually bring enormous benefits to us in this world. They help our doctors understand the latest medical technology and research. Um, They help companies lower their costs by migrating their data to the the cloud. Uh, They help us in our personal lives. Uh, Just very recently, Kristen and I installed a generator at our house. Now, because you know how mechanical I am, you know that when I say I installed the generator, that means I hired a contractor who told me what generator to get, uh, what accessories I needed, and which uh, bells and whistles I said skip over because they're not worth it. And, of course, the contractor installed everything and did all the work. Yes, I installed a, con- a, a, a generator at my house just this week. Here's the thing. From the moment I first talked to Cody Electric, and every phone call I had with them, every personal contact I had with them, I was happy with it. Uh, they were making their living. I actually hope a really good living. The Cody family and the tradespeople that work for them make their living by selling people like me a product and services. So what's different between them and the telemarketer? Well, I think it actually boils down to two things. First of all, um, I actually don't know what the telemarketer is trying to sell, but I start in advance by assuming that I don't need a warranty for all the appliances in my house. right? That is, they're trying to sell me something that I don't really want. But I think there's something else as well. I think the reality is but the telemarketer doesn't care about me. The Cody family and all their employees are making a living, and as I said, hopefully a good living, by serving people. But by giving us products and services that we want in a manner that reflects integrity. On the other hand... Rightly or wrongly, we all suspect that the telemarketer doesn't care in the slightest about serving us. The Cody family is making their living uh, by serving people. The telemarketer, rightly or wrongly, we think is making his living by using us. And none of us wants to be used. This morning's passage applies the same distinction between serving with integrity and using people to us, to our Christian lives and to our Christian service. And it cuts right to the heart of of our motives as the Apostle Paul gives us an example of what Christian service ought to look like. The title I gave to this morning's sermon is True Service. It's actually pretty good. But it could be misunderstood in one of two ways. First, we could imagine that Paul's description of the way he, Silas, and Timothy ministered to the Thessalonians was a response to criticism that he was receiving. That people were attacking the apostle as though he was a bit of a charlatan, and this is Paul's defense. But I think that's entirely wrong. There is nothing in First or 2 Thessalonians which suggests that Paul had a contentious relationship with any of the people in Thessalonica. Well, any of the Christians in Thessalonica. He was, in fact, driven out uh, by Jews there, and also Jews that had traveled from Philippi because they didn't like him preaching the kingdom of God. But there is absolutely no indication that the Thessalonians had anything other than love and gratitude for these three men. In fact, when we come to chapter 3, Paul's going to tell the Thessalonians about the good news that he had heard when Timothy had come to him. The good news of your faith and love. And uh, Timothy's report that you always remember us kindly and long to see us even as we long to see you. There is no conflict at all between the church in Thessalonica and the apostle Paul. So a better approach is to see that Paul had already commended the Thessalonians for becoming imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And he said, that was really good. And by the way, let me explain to you what our example was really about. That is, this is a way of Paul teaching them, giving them a pattern of life, a pattern for Christian service, both for them and for us. Paul isn't giving us a defense of his own conduct. He is giving us an example, a pattern of life, for each of us to follow There's a second problem, however. We could imagine that what Paul was doing primarily is giving an example for how ministers and missionaries ought to serve. Now, by the way, he is doing that. But that isn't all he's doing. Uh, Just as most of the people in this congregation are not going to become ministers or missionaries, the vast majority of the people that were in the church in Thessalonica were not going to become ministers or missionaries. Paul wasn't giving them a rule, a measuring stick to hold up to other people. By the way, any other people, not just ministers and missionaries. He wasn't simply giving them a rule and saying, this is how you measure whether or not they are serving rightly. Rather, he's giving us a pattern of Christian service for all the people of God for us to imitate so that we will increasingly serve the way that Christ wants us to. So if I were going to give a new title to this morning's sermon, and I'm about to, um, it would be this, improving our serve. That's the goal of this passage. It's God's instruction to us, calling us to improve our serve. That is, other people should experience our Christian service a lot more like the way I experienced Cody Electric, and a lot less like the way that we experience telemarketers. But how exactly do we do that? How do we improve our serve? Well, Paul tells us in four points. We improve our serve by serving with courage, by serving with integrity, by serving with truth, and serving with love. Those are the four calls on your life from this passage. Serve with courage, serve with integrity, serve with truth, and serve with love. And one of the great things about this passage, is you can go back to Acts and see how Paul actually does all four of these things. That is, the Lord is not only giving us instructions on how to improve our serve, he's showing us what it looks like. We begin with courage in verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers... That our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I think that uh, courage is a grossly underestimated virtue in the Christian life. that many of us imagine that courage is something that a few Christians need when they're doing dramatic things. Uh, But actually the Bible gives us a very different message about the priority of courage. When we turn to nearly the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, Jesus gives us a stirring description of the great separation that's going to take place between his disciples and those who are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Here's what our risen and exalted Lord has to say. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur that is the second death. Now thankfully, as you all know, even murderers, if they repent and trust in Jesus, can have all their sins forgiven. God's grace in Jesus Christ is greater than all your sins even if you've done every single thing on this list. Nevertheless, we understand that repenting, being turned to God, means a reorientation of our lives. It is simply inconsistent with a profession of faith that you're trusting in Jesus, you're bowing the knee to him as your Lord and Savior, for you then to go out and murder people, or to engage in sorcery, or to make lying the very pattern of your life. I think we all get that. Except for one thing. I left out something when I read that passage to you. Here's what Jesus actually says. One word I left out at the beginning of his list of sins, descriptions of people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but who will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus says this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The very first class of people that Jesus says will be cast into the lake of fire are the cowardly. I don't think we normally lump that in with being a murderer, or even a chronic liar. But it is what Jesus puts at the head of the list. See, it turns out to simply be a Christian at all requires courage. Uh, We get this from Jesus in his earthly life. During his earthly life, Jesus plainly taught us, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father in heaven. It can sometimes take a great deal of courage to acknowledge Jesus before men. This type of courage is necessary if we are going to be Christians at all. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? You acknowledge me before men, I acknowledge you before my Father. But if you're a coward and you won't acknowledge me before men, then I will not acknowledge you before my father either. Well, we still have a problem. If I were to ask all of you to write down examples of Christian courage, I think almost all of us would come up with something like Jim Elliott, going to be a missionary to the Alka Indians, who would soon take his life. Let's be clear, that did take courage. I want to suggest this morning that while the consequences were more severe, it actually didn't take any more courage for him to do that than it does to be a high school student who stands for Jesus in the face of peer pressure. Or to live for Christ as a salesman, as an electrician, as a carpenter in the modern world. They both take real courage. It can sometimes take a great deal of courage... To confess Jesus before men, and this type of courage is necessary if we are to be Christians at all. And as Paul is making clear, courage is absolutely essential for Christian service. Uh, he reminds the Thessalonians that though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Think about how much courage that took. You know, Paul and Silas, when they went to Philippi, they followed their standard routine. They go to the synagogue, uh, they proclaim Christ, they show that Christ is uh, prophesied in the scriptures and that Jesus is this Messiah, and it ends up with them getting beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Please don't pass over that too quickly because you've read the story a bunch of times, and you know they end up singing psalms in prison, and God miraculously lets them free. I mean, how many of us have been beaten with rods and thrown into prison? Uh, Let us be honest, that's an experience we all want to avoid. So God does miraculously bring them out of prison, converts the Philippian jailer. But Paul and Silas, they have to get out of town with Timothy, and they make their way to Thessalonica. What do they do when they get there? Imagine you're in the shoes of young Timothy, and you're thinking, what are the lessons learned from this? How do we present things differently this time so that no one gets beaten and thrown into jail? But that's not what Paul does. Right? Look at, think about Acts 17 with me. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. We looked at this a few weeks ago. In Acts 17, we're told, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica and thrown into prison for doing the work that Jesus had entrusted to him, didn't change Paul's behavior in the slightest. He didn't soften the message. He didn't change the approach. He simply remained faithful to the Lord's call upon his life. Beloved, that takes remarkable courage. Yet this might be the most important thing I have to say about Christian courage this morning. Christian courage is not about working up to some dramatic event in your life. Christian courage is simply the commitment to be faithful no matter what. You might be faithful for decades and not suffer harsh persecution, but that takes Christian courage just as much as that time when it actually led to Paul and Silas being beaten and thrown into prison. Improving our serve requires courage. But that's not enough. It also requires integrity. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, people in the ancient world, just like people in the modern world, had learned to be appropriately cynical. Uh, I trust that none of you imagines that a Nigerian prince is really giving you a large sum of money. But our skepticism goes well beyond the obvious scams, and we all want to avoid getting ripped off. Uh, Think back to my example of Chris and I getting a generator installed. Now, I know there are some people, maybe some of you, and so when you're going to get a project like that done, what you're really focusing on is getting the absolute best deal possible in terms of price. But that's not me. Uh, for one thing, in a battle of wits with a crafty contractor, I am the unarmed opponent. Right? I have no ability to do that. I'm not looking for the absolute best price. I'm looking for someone who's going to give me a good product and be honest with me. They're going to tell it to me straight. They're not going to sell me things I don't need. And they're going to do a good job. By the way, a lot of other people like that, too. Uh, Think about Costco. Hope you all like Costco, otherwise this is a bad illustration. Uh, But think about Costco. Costco is one of the world's great retailers. And yet they don't always have the cheapest prices. That is, if you were to hunt around and look for sales and clip coupons and everything, uh, on many items you could probably get a slightly better price. But the thing about Costco is, is they always give a good product at a good price. They actually cap their their profit margins on everything. So you know that you are not going to get ripped off. People like that, so they shop at Costco. They actually pay to have a membership fee, knowing they're going to get good value, not necessarily the perfect value. That is, from a business standpoint, Costco is treating its customers with integrity. Here's the point. If integrity matters in terms of selling pork chops and lawn chairs, how much more does it matter in terms of our Christian life and our Christian service? Well, obviously it matters a great deal more. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that his appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Uh, This was an important truth. For the ancient Mediterranean world had more than its fair share of wandering salesmen. They couldn't do telemarketing calls. They had to travel around. It had traveling teachers and people who who wanted to make a living by telling them what they hoped was true rather than what was actually the truth. In the Wild West, we called such people snake oil salesmen. That is, they sold snake oil as a cure-all for all the problems that ail us. Well, God's people, that's you, must never be like that. Undoubtedly, the Thessalonians had come to know that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were, in fact, the genuine article. They loved them for that. But now when Paul's writing them, he's explaining the principle behind that integrity. It wasn't self-generated. It wasn't Paul was a really good person. We're not like that. Paul brings them to a much more foundational truth that lies behind their integrity in Christian Christian service. He says, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he gives us three things that all revolve around God that are the key to Christian integrity. God is the one who has entrusted us with the gospel, with the mission. Think about the Great Commission where Jesus gives it to the whole church. It's not our mission. It's Christ's mission that we've been called to enter into. God is the one we are seeking to please. I'm going to keep telling you that over and over again because that's so foundational to Christian life. So much of your life depends on whether you're seeking the praise of man or of God. Of course, you want both. You need to seek the praise of God more. And third... God is the one who tests our hearts. Now, the truth is, the traveling snake oil salesman may be able to fool enough people to to have money to buy the things that he wants, at least for a while, until he has to get out of town and go to the next town and next town where people don't know him. But why would anyone trade a clear conscience before the Lord for a momentary chance at passing riches or a fleeting prosperity? As Charles Stubbs so memorably put it, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Beloved, if we are to improve our serve, we need to serve with courage, and we also need to serve with integrity. An inescapable aspect of serving with integrity is serving with truth. I, I very well could have combined these two but I think this issue about truth is so important to us that I wanted to break it out as a separate item in Paul's list. Look at verses five and six with me. Paul writes, "We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others." though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So clearly Paul is still speaking about integrity. But we need to look at this closely, because what he is saying is much, much harder for us to do than I suspect most of us imagine. If I were to ask today, are you the type of person who regularly flatters other people? every one of us would instinctively go, oh, no, I'm not a flatterer. And I want to say, don't be so fast. You live at a time and a culture where you are expected to flatter people all the time, and you are expected to do it, and if you don't, you are considered mean. You are considered unloving. Of course, as Christians, shouldn't you be a loving people? Let me explain what I mean by this. Well, first, I, I should uh, remind us that flattery is not the same thing as patting people on the back and complimenting them on their good work. Uh, by all means, you should do that. Flattery is telling people what they want to hear and how good they are when there's no basis for it in fact. Right? Or at least you don't have any basis for it. So... I do want to say to you that if you're looking for an increased avenue of service within our church, uh, one of the areas that we can always use more of is people that are self-conscious about encouraging others, about finding out what other people are doing well, recognizing them, praising them for it, and speaking well to other people about it. Right? We're not here saying that encouragement is bad. Rather, I want to tell you that encouragement and praise, when it's grounded in truth, is a really great good, and it's vital to the life of us as a church family. Nevertheless, telling people what they want to hear, even when it has no basis in fact, is a challenge for all of us. You live in a world where when someone complains to you about their boss, or complains to you about their wife, you are expected to take their side. I mean, you don't know their boss, you don't really know what's going on with your wife, but you're expected to take their side and talk about, they are such a good person. And it's just horrible that they're being treated this way. That's flattery, right? You're, you're telling them what they want to hear when you have no basis in truth for it. And you are expected to do that. You might actually think, well, if I'm making this person feel good, by taking their side with their boss and so on, I mean, what's the harm in that? I'm just helping them feel a little bit better. But it turns out that that harms everyone involved. Your flattery might actually be helping this person not move on to realize they ought to be a better employee at work. Right? It really is their boss's fault. So they may get fired from job after job with lots of people commiserating with them and telling them they're such good employees. I mean, I would never hire them personally for my own business, but they're such good employees, I don't understand how you get treated like that. Or in the case of the marriage... Um, siding with the person who's complaining about their wife or the wife complaining about their husband may actually be something they use as their own self-justification for not repenting, right? It may be the thing that keeps them from having that healing that comes from turning to God and saying, I am the one who has sinned. Lord, please change me. Such flattery might make us feel like we are being kind when in truth we are being selfish. Wow, that's a hard word, but that is the truth. The reason why we flatter people is so that they will like us, even in the moment. We don't want to deal with conflict or stress. And in that moment, uh, when we tell people that they're in the right, they naturally like us. By the way, think about this even with students going to school where there's no real conflict going on. It's the natural temptation for students in college to agree with their professors when they write their papers. Because it turns out when professors, who should know better, get papers turned in, where the student happens to agree with them, well, you can see how smart they are. They agree with me. But beloved, that's not the way we should be as Christians. We ought to be people who tell the truth. Because God uses the truth to bless other people, even if it can be hard truths. Think about Jesus. I mean, if we ask the question, who's the most caring and kind person in history, it's obviously Jesus Christ. None of us would debate that. It's just obvious. You read through the Gospels and we are all astonished with his tenderness and kindness toward broken people. A bruised reed he would not break. But when you read those same Gospels, you're also struck by the fact that Jesus speaks the truth. Hard truths. Truths that people don't want to hear because that's what love demands. They might be thinking, well, yeah, I mean, he's God. What do you expect from me? Okay, well, look at the apostle Paul who's writing this letter. Paul may be the greatest Christian who ever lived. I mean, we don't know. But, I mean, his life is really astonishing in terms of what he does in terms of his devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul is someone who could be remarkably gracious to people, kind, forgiving. But Paul also spoke the truth in love told people things they didn't want to hear because it was more important for them to get the gospel right than it was to feel good about themselves on their way to hell. Beloved, that's true for us too. That's what Paul is telling us, and that's what Paul is showing us through his life. To improve our serve, we must serve with courage, we must serve with integrity, and we must serve with truth. But that's not enough. It's a lot. But it's not enough. We must also serve with love. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Paul writes, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I'll be honest, it's easier for me to picture Paul and Silas singing in prison. Not an easy thing for them to do, but easier for me to imagine. It's easier for me to think of Paul writing that fiery, passionate letter to the Galatians to correct them as they were in danger of moving away from the gospel. It's easier for me to imagine Paul like that, than it is to grasp the image that Paul uses to convey his tender love for the Thessalonian believers. The Apostle Paul, who was a tough, strong person, compares himself to a nursing mother as he writes to them. Rick Phillips puts this really well. He writes, We should not be surprised that Paul used a feminine analogy for his labors as an apostle since God's grace touched his heart in order to expand rather than contract his range of human emotions and actions. Just as a mother does not stand on her dignity when meeting the needs of her baby, neither did Paul lord his authority over the Thessalonians as he sought to shepherd them Into faith and godliness. That's a beautiful picture. And I think it could be summed up in one word love. All true service comes down to the two great commandments that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. How do you improve your serve? By the grace of God, we seek to serve with courage, integrity, and truth. But aren't these really just another way of saying that our service needs to be motivated by our love for God and by a genuine love for our neighbor? By the way, it goes in that order temporally, not just in priority. When Paul shows up in Thessalonica, his love for them is entirely abstract. It's because he loves God, he's bringing them the gospel. But in the very act of loving God and bringing them the gospel, Paul comes to love them too. And beloved, I think you're going to discover the same thing in your own life. As you bring the grace of God in other people's lives, God is going to bring your heart and set it upon them. Just as he did for Paul. Well, you may have noticed I skipped over verse 1 this morning. I know some of you are very attentive and we are going to point that out to me after the service. Uh, I wasn't actually skipping it, I was saving it to the end. So you might say, I actually have five points this morning and that's because I'm a Calvinist. But I, but I was saving this last point, verse 1, to the end for a reason. Paul writes there, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you was not in vain. Now, that verse really resonates with me. Those of you who know me know that I hate the idea that life could be futile or vain. That that my life, that your life, could somehow end up not making a difference for good. I hate that idea. So this verse resonates with me profoundly. What did Paul mean when he wrote that our coming to you was not empty? Uh, This word vain actually just means empty. Two thoughts. First, he could be saying... We didn't come to you empty-handed. That is, we didn't come empty seeking to be filled by you. We came to you with the priceless treasure of the gospel so that you might be filled by God through us. I think that's true. Uh, I think that was part of what Paul is saying here. We should remember that in our own life. When we seek to serve in Christ's name, we remain clay pots, with so little to commend in ourselves. But we are not just clay pots. We are clay pots who have been entrusted with the priceless treasure of the gospel. We are not telling people how they can get rid of their acne, or even how they can be free of cancer. We are telling people how they can be completely forgiven, how they can know God, and how in Christ they can truly receive abundant and everlasting life beloved let's not sell the gospel short or imagine that we need to dress it up to make it worth the other person's time when we come in Christ's name we never come empty handed and we always come with the greatest news that has ever been told but i think paul's actually focusing on the second point paul has a different type of em- emptiness a different type of vanity in view What Paul was focusing on is that his ministry among the Thessalonians was not without effect. And of course, they knew that. They were the fruits of God's work through Paul in that great city. Here is the plain and wonderful truth behind Paul's words. Do you want your life to matter? Of course you do. We all want our lives to matter. The good news is is God wants your life to matter too. This means that you don't need to come up with some brilliant plan to have a meaningful life. The Lord has already taken care of that. Nor do you need to do something dramatic which is going to cause everyone to know your name. Having a truly meaningful life is not about making your name famous. It's about making the name of Jesus Christ famous. All that is required for you to have a life that matters profoundly for good is for you to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. Uh, This sort of love is active, and it calls us to work at the way that we serve one another. So let us seek by the grace of God to serve with courage, to serve with integrity, to serve with truth, and to serve with love. Day in and day out, right where we work, and right where we live. Let us serve with both feet firmly planted in this world, but with our eyes fixed on eternity. For Charles Stubbs was right. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's make sure our lives matter forever. Amen.